Hey, Bullseye listeners, it's Jesse. You might already know that in addition to this show, I do a comedy show called Jordan Jesse Go with my buddy, uh, comedy writer Jordan Morris. He was actually one of the original co-hosts of this show when I started it in college some decades ago. Gone on to a big career in show business. Anyway, we're in the middle of our Summer Boys of Summer tour, so I hope you will come out and see us. We have a show on the 26th in Brooklyn, the 27th in Boston, the 28th in Washington, D.C., and the 29th in Austin, Texas. So if you have ever wanted to hear your favorite NPR host swear and you're willing to settle for hearing me swear, come out to those shows. You can find the show calendar at MaximumFun.org. That's the 26th in Brooklyn, the 27th in Boston, the 28th in Washington, D.C., and the 29th in Austin, Texas. Say hi after the show. It's the Jordan Jesse Go Summer Boys of Summer Tour. All those dates at MaximumFun.org. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. My guest this week is filmmaker Joe Talbot. Joe just released his first feature-length film. It's called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. It's a story about San Francisco and how it's changing, but also so much more. The big stuff is covered, gentrification and race and money. So much money. Not having enough money. But you don't have to be from the Bay to appreciate the movie. At its heart, it's about trying to figure out what home means. I mean, whatever. I'm not above living in a former crack house, you know. But I came here for Janice and the airplane, not to work at a startup. Dude, I've, I've been saying for months, let's just move to East L.A. The city's dead. Yeah. Seriously, this city. Excuse me? You don't get to hate San Francisco. I'm sorry, what? Yeah, dude, I mean, sorry, but I'll hate what I want. Do you love it? It's, I mean, yeah, I'm here. But do I have to love it? You don't get to hate it unless you love it. Joe Talbot, welcome to Bullseye. It's nice to have you on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I have to admit that any time I see a scene in a movie that's set in a muni bus in San Francisco, I see it as a tribute to that scene in Star Trek IV where Spock does the Vulcan death grip on the punk rock guy and he passes out on the bus. <laughs> you know, I have not seen it, I have oh, to admit. Wow. I know, wow, Joe. Native card revoked. But oh. do I get it back if I tell you when you first started to say that, I thought you were going to say The Laughing Policeman, <laughs> where there's that great mass murder that happens <laughs> on the back of the 14, even though it's in Chinatown. So not quite correct, but. <laughs> so you're a native San Franciscan. Are there versions of San Francisco that you've seen on film that are close to your heart? I think, as I'm sure you feel as well, being from there, and it turns out having grown up very close to where I grew up, you know, whenever you see San Francisco on screen, you kind of lean in because we're always excited to see our city. I, at one point, just started digging for movies and became sort of like uh, helplessly uh, obsessed with finding San Francisco movies I hadn't heard of because I grew up on like... 
The Dark Passage, Maltese Falcon, the 40s films, and then, of course, like Coppola stuff in the 70s. And then, you know, Miss Doubtfire was obviously, you know, huge when I was a kid. Shout out to Sister Act. Yes. But more recently, I discovered movies like Petulia. Did you ever see that? No. This is a movie I can't believe I'd never even heard of it. It's Julie Christie and George C. Scott, and it opens in the Fairmont with Janis Joplin performing and Joseph Cotton is, like, dancing. It's, like, a wild movie, and Jerry Garcia's in it, and Richard Lester made it, who, you know, made the Beatles movies, and it's shot by Nick Rogue. It's just got, it's, like, way too many cool things about it. So, you know, all of those movies, in a way, you love, because it's your city, but there weren't a lot of movies I felt like that captured the side of San Francisco that I grew up in and that Jimmy lived in, you know, at least not as we were growing up, which was Mission Area and Jimmy spent time in Hunter's Point and Fillmore. There was, of course, Spike's uh, Sucker Free City, but even that didn't quite feel like the way that I think uh, it, those neighborhoods felt to us. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about living in a place that is as visually iconic as San Francisco is, you know, everyone, just like Paris or something, everyone can imagine San Francisco if you say San Francisco to them, whether or not they've ever been. And mm -hmm. many people have been, many people have visited. It's one of the biggest tourist destinations in the world. Yeah. Is that there are images that you've seen a billion, trillion, quadrillion times, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I mean, I don't have a, problem with it, many of the you know the golden gate bridge rules yeah it's beautiful <laughs> but there's also things that you that like i feel like i have never seen that have much more to do with what my life was as a san franciscan mm -hmm. when i was a san franciscan mm -hmm. and it's you say that like past tense do you not feel like a san franciscan anymore He's wearing a Yay Area shirt, and he has the great Janet Delaney's photograph of Mission Street and the old Mission Theater, now the new Mission Theater, reopened by Alamo. This feels like home away from home here, man, I have to tell you. Right right next to, it's worth mentioning, uh, Don Caveman Robinson and Rick Big Daddy Russell's uh, locker plaques from the <laughs> 1988, I believe, San Francisco Giants. Wow, right on. But... These are places that when I saw them on screen, I thought of some documentaries that I'd seen. Mm -hmm. Straight out of Hunter's Point, mm -hmm. alias Don Bonus. Did you ever see that movie? It's no. this, um, God, I want to say this, this guy, this, it was a teenager, a first generation immigrant who is, I, I want to say he was Cambodian, but he might have been Vietnamese. Mm -hmm. And he lived in, this is going back to high school when I saw this movie, but he lived in, I think he lived in Sunnyside Projects mm. and made this documentary about his life. He was like 17, 16, 17 years old. And it's a totally amazing hmm. movie. Hmm. But yeah, like stuff like that. Yeah. But not anything that I'd ever seen on screen. Were there things that you thought were important to include since you had the the chance to make a San Francisco movie about San Francisco? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it feels like, a, Jimmy and I always say, you know, it feels like a lifetime's worth of sort of ideas collected into this. It's our life's work in a way. Big things and little things. Candy House is just the idea of a candy house. You know, there's a candy house scene in Double Rock, which they were just about to tear down. I think they have since we shot, you know, housing projects, which are sort of famous in San Francisco. When you say a candy house, you're talking about a lady that's running a convenience store out of her house. Mm -hmm. And in high school, I was like the kid that made beats for some local rappers. So I met San Quinn way back when. 
And San Quinn, you know, he's a San Francisco legend as a rapper, but he's also this great, like, storyteller and sort of order. He's, like, kind of been everywhere. His story's about Mac Dre and, you know, so on. So he felt like, you know, just as a person, like, so important to get in the movie, uh, his cousin, Willie Han, who plays the preacher in the beginning, and then more recent figures who've sort of become, like, folk heroes in San Francisco, like Jamal Trulove, he plays Kofi in the movie, and um, Jamal was wrongfully convicted of murder and spent nearly seven years in prison and then got out. Uh, you know, it turns out it was a wrongful conviction, which he'd been saying it was the entire time. And um, we were casting kids for a rock fight scene, and Jamal was working at United Players. And so we went to United Players to cast these kids, and he came in and was really curious about what we were doing, and he just auditioned sort of on the spot, and he was great. So we casted him, and then like, we were like a week or something out from production, and he won a $10 million settlement from the SFPD. So now everywhere you know you go when you're with Jamal in San Francisco, you hear people shouting out, 10 milli, 10 milli. He's like now famous, you know. We tried as much as we could, you know, to get – every little detail for people that are from there to make it land. And I think, you know, hoping that even beyond people that have a connection to San Francisco and San Francisco's past, that it just feels like a world that you can escape into. Because I think that's the thing, right? For like, I never left San Francisco, basically ever. <laughs> I The longest I had been away from San Francisco before I came to LA to edit was a week in my whole life at a time. So... I I watched movies growing up and, you know, those became portals into other places and felt like, you know, vacations that I didn't have. And that feeling you get when you watch a movie that has just conjures a sense of place can be incredible, you know. So I think we were hoping to, in our own way, create that with San Francisco, both sort of in what is there and our romantic ideas of what it what it felt like. Do you question the reality of your romantic ideas sometimes? Oh, yeah, often. I think that's part of what the film's about, too, is wrestling with, you know, both this nostalgia for an old San Francisco, the want to fight for San Francisco, and that coming up against sort of the realities that, you know, in some ways there are parts of of what San Francisco means to us that we might, that might live more in our hearts than our brains. They might be something that in some ways we romanticize. I grew up on the stories of old San Francisco from both my parents. My dad came there in the 60s. And on my mom's side, I'm fifth generation. So, you know, growing up on stories of my grandmother going to the Roxy when it was a silent theater. And playing out the sand dunes when the avenues only extended to a certain point. And then, you know, in the music in the 60s on Janice and firsthand accounts of friends that slept with Janice Joplin, you know, and, and being at the Human Being and the Hallinans, you know. And I have this weird longing for a time that I didn't even live through as a part of that that grainy old footage of that time that you see in movies and that beautiful music that's like impossible to recreate, I think creates this feeling of like magic, even though in a way some of that stuff only lasted for a year, but it kind of lives in our hearts forever. 
So that can't be fully real. And yet I think it, it's like such a part of being a San Franciscan. So, you know, I think Jimmy and I in our own ways are both coming to terms with, with what the past is and, and might not have been as well as what San Francisco is today. Tell me how you met Jimmy, the guy with whom you wrote this movie and who is the star of this movie in an, an eponymous role. <laughs> Jimmy and I met at Presida Park when we were kids. I grew up off Alabama Street, and Jimmy, after he lost the house in real life that the sort of film is based on, he moved all around the city, moved to Alamany, he was in Hunter's Point, and then at one point he was in Army Street and the housing projects there. And so we met at Presida Park as kids. That was where kind of everyone hung out. And I was like, I think everybody that becomes a filmmaker, I had like a camera in my hand. I was always trying to get people to be in my movies. And so Jimmy became one of those people. But, you know, even before we talked about movies or tried to make them, I think we just bonded on, like, Jimmy's just like a storyteller, and he'd lived kind of a lot, (laughs) even by that age. And so he had these great stories, and I come from a family of storytellers, and so I think that was our first sort of, like, bond was just exchanging stories. And then eventually those stories became the kind of basis for this film. Were you scared to get things wrong? It was something that we spent a lot of time working on. I think that you have different sort of responsibilities you think about with this movie. You think about for San Francisco, you know, a city that is, I think, both like a place that is really encouraging, but also is like critical if you up. You know, I think about Jimmy, you know, he's like one of my best friends and wanting to make sure that like I honored his vulnerability, that he's like, putting so deeply into this movie and so I think an important thing to us beyond it being like something that Jimmy and I created and then continued to sort of develop was like making sure that everybody that came on had their own kind of unique perspective into this and so I don't know how movies are often made this being my first my assumption just from people that have come on to this movie who have worked on more movies and kind of hearing from them is that they're not as maybe collaborative as this. And I was lucky. I had so many different smart people working on this and pouring themselves into it that I was kind of learning from while we were working with that the movie really, I think, reaped the benefits of of their input that you don't always get. Like, I think not not often do you have people, especially in the early stages before you're financed, before you have any sort of like real traction, you don't have people that are working kind of around the clock to like improve every little thing and and challenge things and push back on certain areas. So I think out of that process, like it got deeper and it felt like, you know, I was able to sort of not to rely on other people, but to to feel like together, collectively, we were making something that we all believed in. And that means for a group of like seven or eight people and, and then a few others that came on at different times, no one of us had the same background as the other. That was part of why I think that was so important. Some are from the Bay, some aren't. And so I think just when you look at that group, it was like a lot of different smart people that really invested themselves in it. My interview with Joe Talbot continues after a quick break. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org 
and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message comes from Babbel. Have you always wanted to speak a new language? Whether it's for travel, work, or brain training, Babbel's 10 to 15 minute lessons will get you speaking confidently in your new language. Choose from Spanish, French, and more. You'll learn through real-life dialogues, speech recognition, and interactive trainers. And Babbel's spaced repetition method actually makes you remember what you've learned. Download the app or go to Babbel, B-A-B-B-E-L, dot com to try Babbel for free. Drag has been around for a while. In the kabuki tradition in Japan, in minstrel shows, in vaudeville. But one TV show made it mainstream now. We break down drag's current renaissance. Check out NPR's It's Been a Minute now. Hi, I'm Biz. And I'm Teresa. And we host One Bad Mother, a comedy podcast about parenting. Whether you are a parent or just know kids exist in the world, join us each week as we honestly share what it's like to be a parent. I don't know how to fix mornings for myself. (laughs) I do not know how to make mornings okay for myself. So the t-shirt, I don't do mornings, isn't even a funny shirt. I shouldn't get it for you. It's sad. It's a sad shirt. Yeah, it's a sad shirt with tears flowing. So join us each week as we judge less, laugh more, and remind you that you are doing a great job. Find us on MaximumFun.org, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Joe Talbot. He just released his beautiful first film. It's called The Last Black Man in San Francisco. The idea that I had of classic San Francisco or old San Francisco when I was a kid, leaving aside, you know, the gold rush, was the world of the San Francisco Chronicle columnist Herb Cain, who's a very legendary figure in San Francisco media. And he wrote a column, a three-dot column, a sort of musings column for decades in the Chronicle that was its, he was their star writer. And there's now streets named after him in San Francisco and so forth. I followed this Twitter account of quotes from Herb Cain. And Herb Cain had been, like he retired when I was like 13 or 14. So it was before I knew what he was other than as a story. And I've been reading these quotes about San Francisco, these beautiful things that he wrote. He was a very beautiful writer. And one of the things that struck me was the way that the story of San Francisco is about this change and tumult yeah. through its 150-ish year history as <laughs> yeah. a city. Right. But the sort of the sub part of that is that the difference between these stories about San Francisco changing then and now is economic power that when... Irish immigrants were being displaced by Latinx immigrants in the 60s and 70s. It was a very different situation than those same Latinx immigrants being displaced by tech workers in the 90s and 2000s. Right. And it's so scary to feel like you don't have agency. Like it's scary to see the world change around you, but it's also scary to feel like there's nothing you can do about it. Right. No, I think that's true. I mean, I I felt a similar thing as you dig deeper into the city's history. 
I think there's stories of like Mark Twain in the 1870s going, oh, San Francisco's not what it was in the 1860s, man, you know. And then there's a line in Vertigo where like Tom Helmore, I think, tells Jimmy Stewart's character something like, oh, San Francisco's gone. It's not what it once was or something. So there is this like, weirdly, there is this continuous thread throughout the city's history of this longing for like another time that came before it. And yet like the changes that are happening now, like are also, I think, very real. What's happening now, the latest wave to San Francisco does not feel like people who are coming to the city for its social values or to, you know, escape their small town lives and, and be fully themselves in a way that they couldn't be back home which is what the migrations of the 40s and 50s and 60s feel like, you and, know. And even earlier like as a as a port town before, right. like that's what a port town is. It's people coming from all over everywhere. Right. And the Barbary Coast days right. and now it feels closer to the first rush ever. It feels like a gold rush and people are not coming to be a part of. It feels like they're, you know, coming to take. And that's not true of of course everybody that's moving to San Francisco. But I think that is the sentiment and feeling that a lot of natives have. And so I think when people say things like, oh, cities are always changing, San Francisco is always changing, that does not feel entirely true or, or respectful to the people that came for those reasons before versus now. I want to play a scene from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. So the protagonist of the movie, whose name is Jimmy Fails, he has dreams of reclaiming this beautiful Victorian in the film war that his story is that his, his grandfather built this house. And there's this older white couple that has lived in this house for a long time. His, his, Jimmy's family lost the house some, many years before. But Jimmy keeps showing up there to take care of the building. And in this clip, Jimmy is painting the trim of a window when the couple who live in the building show up. Oh, and also she throws a croissant at him. <laughs> Stop fixing my house. Okay, I'm almost done. Just hold on. Uh, why don't you just paint the neighbors' houses? Theirs are worse than ours. Just hold on one second. Uh, I mean, we appreciate it in, in some just, way, but yeah, it's weird, man. I'm almost done. Look, we will call the cops, man, and I mean it this time. No, we're, we're not going to call the cops. We're not calling the cops. Just stop coming back. I'm almost done. Hold on. Please. Hold on. Oh, just get off my birdie path! No. Out of here, just, man. Those just, are $3. Dollars. Fine. I'll finish it next time. God. Next time? Oh, just get, get the heck off my just birdie Just water bath. the plants in the back or I will. I mean, he is trying to capture physically his history yeah and i i like so deeply understand that feeling of like wanting to hold on to something mm -hmm. that is ultimately ephemeral and in some ways like one of the lessons of the movie is this house is not it, it can't be captured in that way mm -hmm. like his past can't be captured in that way yeah and yet we try yeah you know, I think that's sort of the eternal struggle. And, you know, his best friend is trying to capture it with art. You know, yeah. like they're both just trying to hold on to something that mm -hmm. they don't have the power to keep. Yeah. Someone said to me the other day that it's the friendships that sort of can get you through the 
awful uncontrollable elements of gentrification that yeah you you have very little say in or can feel that you do what is interesting is that i've heard these different reactions to the movie people leaving some people saying that you know it's it's very sad or that they feel like it's you know about making your peace with the the city that's changing but i've i've been happily surprised by how many people have told me that they after seeing it have decided to like fight harder to stay where they are which is interesting one person told us that after he and his boyfriend saw it they're living in LA and they were thinking about as their neighborhood got more and more expensive you know are they should they leave too and and move somewhere more affordable and they saw the movie and he said you know that and they put a down payment on a house in their neighborhood so again i go back and forth so often about what we can do what we should do i think there are people that have been fighting these battles much longer than you know i've been alive you know that are remarkable and have at least slowed the effects of what's happening and and even if even if they hadn't the fight is so noble that i don't think that they look back at their life and think it was wasted you know they're trying to keep people in their homes that make san francisco great and that's a beautiful fight and something i think worth living for but i think the movie is also about saying to people that choose not to take on that fight because they just they don't want to live with that in their hearts or they have enough other battles they're fighting that they can't you know possibly be consumed by one more and particularly one with where they live where they sleep every night where their home is that if you choose not to that's okay too it's okay to go somewhere else and create a new home there and as the movie says it's not your loss it's san francisco's i was watching a short documentary about a guy who's from east palo alto for this show actually and East Palo Alto is currently going through similar things. And this this guy says, you know, he says, I don't have a home anymore that's a place. Mm. That is gone. But I have a home that's people that I love. Mm -hmm. And I have a home that's like a sense of self that was created by that place. Yeah. In part. That's what the, the Castro Theater felt like the other night. Where it felt like by some miracle and well no more than a miracle people fighting their asses off that there are these people that remain in san francisco either they're born and raised there or they came there and have lived there for a long time against all odds they're there and part of why they're there if they don't for those of them that don't i think have physical homes that they have you know own is that there are still great people in the city enough that it's still worth being there and there are still enough even as so many places close you know luca closed a couple weeks ago i went there growing up every every you know everybody in every city at this point knows the feeling of walking down the street and seeing that great you know bakery or uh, mom and pop shop that you used to go to you know the sign in the window says they're closing but there's still enough just enough it feels like places in San Francisco that have remained, you know, Castro Theater's still open. That's a big one for me. Um, the Roxy, somehow, that they thought was going to close down years ago, is still open. That I think it makes sense to stay. And the hope, I think, with anything, 
you know, I guess us in our own very small way with this movie is to call attention to the importance of what that community feels like. I mean, that was everything in our lives. When if, if there was no community of artists at all left in the Bay Area, this movie never would have got made because me and Jimmy would have put that concept trailer online and no one would have written us. But instead, there were these people, most of them, frankly, living at home, like us. <laughs> so not gloriously, but still there, who wrote us and then became the people that we made this movie with. So I do have, most days, I do still have hope. Well, I'm so grateful for your beautiful movie about about our home. And uh, thank you for it. Well, thank you. I can say, honestly, this is one of the you know nicest conversations I've had about it. So it's great when you talk to someone else that loves it you know, the city as much as you do, because you get to get sort of into more interesting conversations. So thank you so much for having me. We'll see if anybody else who interviews you about this movie has Luca Torlini's in their freezer right now. <laughs> wow. That... Call my mom. Oh, my bring, God. Bring us, bring us five pounds. We don't have a big freezer, but... Wow. That is amazing, man. Joe Talbot. You can check out his film, The Last Black Man in San Francisco, in theaters now. It is breathtakingly beautiful. One of my favorite movies this year, and I think you will feel the same way. Whether or not you have ever, uh, I don't know, taken the 15 Third Street bus to Candlestick Park instead of the Ballpark Express because you wanted to save We've come to the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California, where this week our producer Ragu saw 10 ducks swimming across the lake in an orderly single-file line like they were on a little duck field trip. It was very nice. By the way, I was on tour with my comedy show Jordan Jesse Go, and while I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota... I got to see a line of adorable goslings cross the road. We had to hit the brakes on our rental car. It was a very suburban Midwestern experience, so we both love nature, Rigu. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He's away taking care of a beautiful new baby, so Rigu Manavalan stepped in for him this week. Jesus Ambrosio is our associate producer. We have help from Casey O'Brien. Our production fellow is Jordan Cowling. Our interstitial music is by Dan Wally, a.k.a. DJW. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the Go Team. Thanks to them and thanks to Memphis Industries, their label, for letting us use that. They were super nice about it. They just were like, I emailed them one day and they were like, yeah, it's a public radio show, right? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, you can use it. Before you go. There are so many great bullseye shows available to you. They're all for free. I've been doing this for far too long. I'm nearing death now. Just go to our website, MaximumFun.org, or check out our YouTube page. Just search for Bullseye with Jesse Thorne YouTube, and you will find it. Like, how about my conversation with Rick Moranis? Haven't you ever wondered why Rick Moranis pretty much quit acting for a couple of decades? You can find out why if you listen to that show. Or how about this? Ani DeFranco's got a new memoir out. Why don't you listen to my conversation with the one and only Righteous Babe? You can find both of those on our YouTube channel and our website and on your favorite podcast app. All free. I guess that's about it. Just remember, 
All great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.